This is a Federal News Network podcast. Unemployment insurance has been a crucial safety net for the past couple of years. Now, some state agencies have been trying to devise programs that lead to more resilient local workforces with a focus on reemployment. Ten states, under the auspices of the National Governors Association, have been working on ways to modernize and integrate the delivery of services to the unemployed. Here with more on the Workforce Innovation Network, the association's program director, Rachel Stevens. Ms. Stevens, good to have you on. Thanks so much, Tom. It's great to be on with you. All right. Tell us about this network, Workforce Innovation Network. Which 10 states and what are they doing here? Thanks so much for having me on to talk about this. This is an initiative we and our members at NGA are really excited about. And just for your audience, for quick background, if they don't know about the National Governors Association, NGA is the nation's only bipartisan membership organization representing many of the nation's governors um, among our 55 states and territories. And the NGA Center for Best Practices, where I work, is kind of the consulting and research arm of NGA. And we're the only group doing what we do in direct support of governors and their state executives across really a wide range of policy areas, from health to public safety to cybersecurity to infrastructure. And my team and I have the pleasure of supporting governors around workforce development and economic policy. At NGA, we not only get to work with governors and state leaders, we also have a vast network of partners in the private sector, national organizations, think tanks, researchers, subject matter experts, practitioners of all sorts. So through the Workforce Innovation Network, what we wanted to do was, you know, stepping back to 2020 and really the worst of the pandemic for states and what they were dealing with around the unemployment crisis, we wanted to find a way to pull all of these resources, all this information, all these ideas together to help governors and their executive leaders across a number of agencies think about how they could really better support the workforce in that moment while also still taking a long view and thinking about the future. We knew that once you know the worst was over, there were still a lot of bigger picture systemic economy-wide challenges that governors had been thinking about sure. before the pandemic um, that we wanted to help them have a space to think about even in the midst of the worst of it all. So 10 states then received grants from NGA from your fundraising of $100,000. And what was their charge to do with that money? Yes. So we actually were able to fundraise um, with partners from the Cognizant Foundation to start us out. And we got 10 states on board. Those first 10 states were Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Missouri, Nevada, New Mexico, and Washington. And I think that was even in alphabetical order. Those 10 states were really charged. um, You know, they came to us looking for an opportunity to learn from experts, from the private sector, from each other about promising strategies to really improve coordinated service delivery through the workforce system. So when people who are unemployed or are looking for a better job are coming into public workforce programs in their local areas, they might need other supports and services as well as those training supports, those reemployment assistance services. And we wanted to make sure states had mechanisms and systems in place to actually help connect people to all the many things they may need to ultimately truly get back on their feet rather than kind of remaining, kind of churning through that system and really struggling to find a good job. In other words, the people thrown onto unemployment, many perhaps for the first time and didn't know their way around those mechanisms that might be available. And there's so many programs in so many states. It's I don't think anyone can name them all. But to kind of get those before people's eyes, so to speak, so that they mm-hmm. simply didn't linger on unemployment. 
Absolutely. And it goes even deeper than that. We had a number of states work on improving kind of what I would call it one-stop service delivery portals, if you will, with so many people needing to access services virtually. They also were looking to better connect people who were coming in person to receive services or who would be once stores were reopened, as they are now in many cases. And there's also a lot of that goes on behind the scenes. You have to be able to blend or braid different funding streams, as you just pointed out, with so many different federal, state, local programs. You have to be able to connect data sources and information to make sure you're really understanding how people are flowing through these different programs and systems and, and that you're really meeting their needs. There's a lot that goes into it to create, you know, what might hopefully for a person seem like ultimately the goal here is for it to seem like a really seamless experience to get what they need. We're speaking with Rachel Stevens. She's Program Director for Workforce Development and Economic Policy at the National Governors Association. So you've got a couple of issues here, I guess. One is just the sheer technology of blending these programs, and the federal government is also bad at it. They've got that no wrong front door idea that they're trying to develop at the federal level so people can navigate the government. But then you've also got all of these rules that apply to the programs, and especially if the money comes ultimately from the federal government – Sometimes there are hundreds, thousands, literally, pages of rules. Is that the kind of challenge that the governors and their agencies face? Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. It certainly is. And, uh, you know, through the Workforce Innovation Network, our work with states was really to help them navigate and innovate within the sort of constraints they're facing um, and hopefully with additional support that they can maybe pull in from outside government sources. However, all this work, like much of our work across and the NJ Center for Best Practices, does inform what we do as an organization, as a membership organization, to support our members in identifying bipartisan areas of agreement around what needs to change at the federal level. For your listeners, I would point out um, last year, our governors voted on principles to renew the federal workforce system, and those are available on our website. These are really high-level principles that are intended to serve as a guidepost for legislators and administration officials as they're implementing new programs, considering new legislation, or even reauthorizing existing legislation, um, as we know, is, is hopefully coming up at some point in the next year or so. So among those priorities, you'll see you know, a lot of themes kind of relating to what you just pointed out, opportunities for governors to really leverage their leadership and their role within this ecosystem, opportunities for states to have kind of flexible resources to hopefully truly innovate and not just spend limited resources kind of on basics of administration and compliance with rules and regulations and evaluations, and also really ability to invest in creative pilots, rigorous evaluations of those pilots, and really being able to just truly meet the innovation uh, demand that's out there and engage employers and education partners in that process as well. So again, a lot of principles kind of laid out there at a high level, but you know, again, really, really thinking about how this work all connects to what's needed at the federal level to make more good work, like what these 10 states were able to accomplish, even more possible and scalable in other areas. And do we know yet what types of programs states have come up with to meet these goals of integration and one-stop shopping and so on? You know, perfect timing for you to ask that. Um, I actually also just realized um, the network is just hitting its one-year birthday around right now. (laughs) We launched in January 2021, and our first cohort of 10 states have been working really hard. We had a five-month kind of innovation action planning period with them last year, and they're now working with some of our partners in the Workforce Innovation Network to really implement those plans and develop new programs and strategies. And we just released a publication just a couple weeks ago called Lessons Learned How 10 Governors Are Innovating 
creating in the workforce system. And that also is available online. And that highlights some of our key lessons learned from this work through 10 states. You know, what are some strategies and big takeaways other states can take from what these 10 states have done so far and use in their own systems? And we also featured case studies, a case study of every single state among those 10 that kind of gives you an overview of what they've done and how it's helping. And so we've got great initiatives highlighted there from, again, that whole list of 10 states, the Alabama Skills-Based Recovery Initiative is certainly one to be excited about to the point you were just talking about and kind of that one-stop sort of platform for folks to enter into the system and, and the range of services available. Hawaii's Career Acceleration Navigator, really looking at that one-stop virtual service delivery hub, another phenomenal case study um, among the 10 in there. So I definitely encourage your listeners to take a look. And I guess each state is so different when you talk about Hawaii. If you're going to stay in Hawaii and you're going to work, you've got to do the work that's in Hawaii, (laughs) whereas other states are contiguous to other states and they may have more local resources. So that sounds like the totality of these programs has to be tailored for each state's economic and industrial situation. That's definitely the case. You know, I'll actually start by not exactly contradicting you, but building on something you pointed out, which is, you know, kind of the nature of, you know, needing to be really focused on what's around you in terms of the job opportunities available. Absolutely true in many areas and really leveraging your local networks and resources and employers and educational institutions is an incredibly valuable part of all these strategies. However, as we saw during the pandemic, and it's more it's more true now than it was before the pandemic, there's a lot of opportunities out there for remote work. And that's actually something that places like Hawaii, as well as a lot of rural communities in the contiguous United States, are really trying to capitalize on. This connects, of course, to broadband expansion strategies and a lot of those resources that states will be looking to implement here in the near future. But it also connects to kind of, in Hawaii's case, as an example, a strategy to connect people virtually with services and resources and with hopefully online training programs and maybe even jobs that are online so Hawaii can retain its workforce and its talent, keep people in Hawaii and keep people in these communities while hopefully allowing them the ability to access great jobs that don't require them to be on site. And I would say that's something, you know, we know a lot of rural regions, again, in states and regions across America are looking at now. So it sounds like there is lessons here for the federal agencies to take a look at too, say labor, commerce, and a few others. I would absolutely say so. And you know what, NGA, we're we're very fortunate. Um, We get to have great working relationships with Many of these agencies, really all of them across the presidential administrations, and right now it's no different. And so we're able to communicate what we're learning from some of these programs and what our members' priorities are as a result up to our partners at the federal level, um, which is really exciting, especially right now as they're considering and, and developing so many new programs and opportunities for states. All right. So you've done 10 states or 10 states have done this project. What is ahead here? I'm really glad that you asked. We are really excited to have a second cohort of states now working with us on a connected but slightly different subject. Um, We're now working with North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Hawaii, joining us again after that first project to focus on digital skill development and really closing digital skill gaps and digital equity gaps in their states. So just like this Lessons Learned document we just shared, we are going to be working with our more than 20 national subject matter expert partners that are part of the network as well as additional supporters from Intel, Microsoft, Walmart, and Western Governors University are supporting this work with states to deliver additional lessons learned, hopefully to our broader networks. Um, And so we can talk again in a few months later on this year once we have those. All right. We'll look forward to that. Rachel Stevens is Program Director for Workforce Development and Economic Policy at the National Governors Association. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure talking with you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.